chapter, Romans chapter 2, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. And as we, as we try to understand this chapter, I want to, I'm going to break it down into three points, and, and I want to show you that virtue is really a signal of vice, but acknowledging guilt is, we're going to see, is going to be the gateway to Christ. And so I want, want to get straight to it, and I'll read the text off you there at Romans chapter 2. And it says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, or wrath for yourself, sorry, in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and, in, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law as the Gentiles, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, which is the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on that day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ and in verse 17 but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and you know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness a corrector of the foolish a teacher of the immature having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, 
but from God. And so that's the text that we're looking at this morning. And what we're, what we're going to see in our first point is we're going to see that um, virtue, the idea of being a good, moral, upright person, virtue is going to be on trial and stand before God. And so in the second chapter, uh, we find the Apostle Paul, he's halfway through making his argument. And so a few weeks back, we, we looked at Romans chapter 1, and he began his gospel presentation by, by revealing that the wrath of God was against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. He collected up in his mind the entire mass of humanity, and he put them on trial before God. You remember, he, he split mankind into two groups. He, he split them into the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were the first to present their case. And they brought forth the best argument that they could muster. And he saw their loftiest, their loftiest argument was that they argued that they were innocent because they were ignorant. They argued that they could never be held accountable to God because God had never made himself known to them. And we saw Paul turn their argument on its head by showing that the very opposite was true, that what could be known about God was actually plain to them because he had shown it to them in creation. But instead of acknowledging the creator, a God which they ought to honor and worship, they put their hands over their eyes and they preferred to walk in darkness and in unrighteousness. And so we concluded that their argument had failed, um, that their mouths had been shut, and they were found to be guilty, and Paul says they were without excuse before God. And because they continued, in spite of all the evidence, they continued to willfully and knowingly reject God, we saw that God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions and homosexuality, and finally, we saw that God gave them over to a depraved mind, and their thinking became illogical and corrupt as well. And that was to, to do all manner of wickedness and unrighteousness. And the chapter ended with, with just a horrific list of the grossest sins that we could imagine. So that was chapter 1, and it was just a snowball of sin that resulted from rejecting God. And that's a pattern that's been true in past ages, and that's a pattern that's very true in the world around us in which we live today. But to sum up to chapter 1 in a single word, we could think of that group as the unrighteous people. The unrighteous people. These are the godless hedonists, the pagans, the idolaters, the, those living in gross and obvious sin and rebellion to God. But now as we come to chapter 2, Paul starts to turn his focus to a, a second group of people. And we could sum up this chapter by thinking of them as the self-righteous people. Um, and so this is um, this, and, and this group have most likely been cheering Paul on, as, as we heard chapter one. They're, they're cheering him on, and they're agreeing with the condemnation of these wicked Gentiles. But now it's their turn to stand before God and, and to see how good they really are. So in this chapter, Paul's primary focus turns to the Jews, and they're the very covenant people of God. But I, I don't want you to think he's just talking to the Jews. These verses. They also, they're directly applicable um, to people we could call moralists. And in morals, you hear that, that word moral, virtue, the, the good and upright people. Those that think they dodged Paul's first argument and they, they think they slipped past it unscathed and they haven't yet been condemned by God's law. And so they're those that don't see themselves guilty of those grossest sins. You know, they might, they might say, sure, you know, I, 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 I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a pretty good sort of a person. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the people that God has in view this morning, and they're the, the good people. 
You know, and these people, judging by external behavior, and this is where it's a little comfortable, they're just like you and me. Um, they're people that, that we live with, they're people that we work with, people that may not believe in Christ, but they try to live their lives with, with some sense of moral integrity. And in a very real sense, these are the hardest people to reach with the gospel because they don't see much need for it. They're, they're good people. Um, and so that's the context this morning. And, and my first point is that Paul is putting these people, the people of virtue, on trial before God, before God's law, to see how good they are. And so if you can imagine that court scene again in your minds, Paul's bringing his argument um, to show that these people are in fact guilty and in need of the gospel as well. And so if we can understand this argument, we can understand the whole chapter so it runs through the whole chapter like a spine, and he, but he, he makes it in parts. It's not just all in one place. So he starts in verses 1 to 3. He, he picks up another bit in verse 14 to 16, and he jumps back to the argument in verses 17 to 24. And so what I want to do is just collect that all up in, at one, in one go and just run through his argument. And, and, and so, um, But if we look there at verse 1, if you turn to verse 1, what you find here is he sums it all up in the first verse, which is really helpful for us. So this, if we understand this first verse, we understand the crux of the whole argument. Um, and it says there in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And so this is his argument, and it's absolutely brilliant. He says that those good and self-righteous people, he says to them, I see that you're able to make judgments. That's the, that's the word that it hinges on. I see that you're able to make judgments. I see that you're able to point out what's wrong and what's right with other people's behavior. And perhaps they'd sit there and they'd shrug their shoulders and they'd say, yeah, so what? And... and as easily as that, as soon as they say, yes, you know, yes, we can make judgments, Paul has them in a vice grip. And it's like when you play, I don't know if you've ever played noughts and crosses when you're trying to get three in a row, and, and you, you put down one or two moves, and you know that no matter which place your opponent goes, you, you're going to win the game. And that's exactly what Paul's done here. He's, even with that little admission that they are able to make judgments, he already can see where it's going, and he already has... He's already shown them guilty before God. And so did, did you see how he did it? Did that make sense? Not, I want to I help you understand how, he, how he's done this. And so imagine, I think we've all done this as well. Imagine you're sitting at the dinner table and you've got little, little kids there and, and you just say grace. And I think, I think we have all done this. And we say grace, we bow our heads, we shut our eyes. And then as soon as you open in your eyes, one of the little kids says, Mom, what do they say? Noah had his eyes open. And you're like, the minute they've let it out, well, everybody knows, don't we? It's like, how did you know that they had their eyes open? And it's like they've condemned themselves. They've, they've, as soon as it's come out of their mouth, that's what Paul's doing here. Um, the key word in this verse is judgment. He sees these good people make judgments against other people. And as soon as they've made it, they have condemned themselves. And so what happens is they, they have acknowledged that they know what is right and what is wrong. They've got some sense of morality. They've got some sense of God's law. And now, this is, this is what happens. They are accountable 
to be judged by the same standard themselves. That's the admission they've made. And so that verse says, For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. They do the things they tell people not to do. And so this is the hinge on which Paul's argument in the whole chapter turns. So it's a, it's a really simple, but it's a very strong argument. And if you understand that, you understand the argument that runs through. But he's just going to keep turning that vice grip and squeezing these people until they can acknowledge and see themselves for who they truly are. Um, but that's the basis of the, the whole argument that unfolds. And, um, and so in the rest of the chapter, we get to see if these good people, uh, if they can stand up under God's or under their own standard of morality. But I want to give you another illustration. In the, in the Bible, we just, we just have this classic example of what's going on. So if you can turn to um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and 11, or maybe to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you'll remember the story of King David and his great sin. Um, and so you remember the great sin that he did. He was, I think he'd sent the army off to war and he'd stayed back and he's sitting comfortably in his palace and he's walking around on his balustrade and he's looking out over all the, the houses of the city and he, and he sees down on the roof there's this beautiful lady bathing and his eyes fix and he, you know what happens. He ends up sending people down to bring her up to the palace and, and everything, uh, he, he, he does what he does, and, and before you know it, this lady's pregnant. And so we, we know the story, and so he sends her away, and he's sitting there going, how do I, how do I get away with this? How do I cover my sin? And so the, the husband of this lady's away at war. He calls him back, and, and instead of, he thinks he'll, she'll, he'll go and you know, sleep with his wife, um, but he doesn't. He's too loyal. While the, while the army's fighting, he sits at the door of the, the palace, and he's, he's a loyal person. And then so David, he, his sin gets worse and worse. He tries to, the next night he tries to get his husband, her husband drunk. Um, and surely then uh, he'll go home to his wife. But it, it doesn't work out. He's too loyal and it doesn't happen. And eventually his sin, to cover his sin, it goes so far that he has to send, um, he plans to kill, to send him back to the army, for, for the soldiers to pull back, to send him to the fiercest part of the army. And he plans his death and he has him killed in battle. And so that's the great sin that's in the background here as we come to chapter 12. And, and, and what happens is Nathan the prophet confronts him for his sin. So in verse 1 it says, um, in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in, in one city. And so he gives them this illustration. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But a, the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And what do you do when a traveler comes? You show hospitality. You get some food ready. And now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to pre prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come, come to him. Then David's anger, so David heard this story, and David was like, his anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, and that's the famous line, isn't it? You are the man. 
And it turned right back on him and suddenly his eyes were opened and he saw that he was guilty of the exact thing that he could see and condemn in other people. So that's what Paul's doing in chapter 2. He's saying to the self-righteous people, you are the man. You are guilty of the very same things that you condemn in other people. And so I want to move down now to verse 14, which is, is the second part of this argument that Paul's making. And in verse 14 it says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, having, or these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, and this is the key word for this part of the argument, their conscience bearing witness, and their th- thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And just as a side note, we see that according to Paul and according to God's gospel, judgment is, is part of the gospel. But the word I wanted you to notice I pointed out was that word conscience. And that's what this part of the argument hinges on. And your conscience is that voice inside you, as this verse teaches. It, it either accuses or excuses, might be the other translation in your Bible. It accuses or excuses your behavior. Sometimes we think of it, um, perhaps we've seen that cartoon, there's a, a a devil on one shoulder and there's an angel on the other one and it's whispering to us, do it, do it. And we're like, no, no, I know that it's wrong. That's our conscience. That's the picture of that voice inside our heads. And, you know, there was a, there's a famous atheist. He died a couple of years ago and, and we don't glory in that at all, but he was a famous atheist, much like Richard Dawkins is. His name was Christopher Hitchens. And he gives this analogy about, or he gives a story really, about a time when he was driving in a taxi. So you imagine him driving through London or wherever he lives and he split the lift. He had another person in the, in the taxi next to him, and it became time the, they got to the, other, the first guy's stop, and he got out and left. But he, he left his wallet on the back seat of the car next to Christopher Hitchens, and his wallet's sitting there, and the guy's walking out the door. And he said, even as an atheist, that I have that little voice inside of me, that conscience. And it says, you could take that wallet, put it in your pocket, keep the money. That guy's going to walk off. You don't even know him. You're never going to be found out. We could do that. But he says, I've got this voice in my head, my conscience, and it says to me, you should take that wallet, open the door, call out to it, give the wallet back to the man. That's the right thing to do. And so we see that even atheists, and he says, you, have to, you would have to be a, a sociopath, a psychopath. I don't, I'm over my head here. I don't know what it is. But you'd have to be a crazy person, <laughs> you know, one of those people with absolutely no sense of guilt. To, to not have that voice in your head. Every person has a conscience. And so that's what Paul's doing with this argument. He's taking that argument to, to a, a deeper level. And he starts, he's winding that vice grip again around these self-righteous people. He's tightening up his argument. Not only do people make moral judgments that turn back on themselves, but now he shows the inner workings of mankind. And he shows us where these judgments come from. And they come from inside of us. We have a knowledge, a conscience, a knowledge inside of us. And they come from our conscience. So in verse 15, you notice it says there, it says their conscience bearing witness. And and what's a witness? If if you were to go to court and there were witnesses brought in, they they were people that saw what happened. They'll they'll give their, they'll, they'll say what they saw taking place. So, Verse 15 says, their conscience bears witness. And that's where this verse, I I think this is one of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible. Especially, this is for those that are outside of Christ. This is a terrifying thought. 
that there is a witness, someone who saw all of our sin, someone that we can't hide anything from. And I'm not talking about God. He can see right through and he sees that as well. But there's a person that was standing there with a crystal clear view of everything we did and it's our very own conscience. We know what we did. And verse 16, Paul speaks of the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He'll judge the things that we, we kept hidden from everybody else, the things nobody could see that took place. We're going to stand before God and give account of the secrets, the secret things. And on that day, as we stand before God, we'll be naked and exposed. Our very own conscience, imagine this, our own conscience gets put in the witness stand in our trial and will bear testimony about the things that we've done. Like it's as if God will say to us, did you, did you, I'm trying to think of a sin. Did you throw the rock at the duck? And, and you'll be like, you're laughing. That's, a, that's one of the things I've done. <laughs> but anyway, but there's one of, your sin will be brought forward and, and your conscience will be there. And you'll be like going, shut up, shut up. And your conscience will say, he did it. I told him not to do it, but he did it. And we violate our own conscience. Our conscience will bear testimony against us. And so that's what happens. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another illustration. I, I, I went into our bathroom. My wife's away at the moment, so the house is a little less uh, tidier than it would have otherwise been. I went into the bathroom, and there was a pile of soap. I think our kids make these cute little soaps out of some little toy they've got. And it's as if someone had got one, crumbled it up into pieces, and just left a pile of mess on the floor in the bathroom. And... You know, I walked into the bathroom and I was like, guys, what, what, what's going on? There's, there's a mess on the floor. So I had four little kids came into the bathroom and I'm sitting there going, guys, I know it wasn't me. I know it was one of you. And you know that you've had that situation before, eh? Did, did you? No, no. Four, four little no's. And <laughs> nobody's made the mess in the bathroom. And And you know what? I still haven't solved that mystery. That'll be one of these things that when we have dinner... <laughs> You know, in 20 years' time, they'll be like, do you remember? <laughs> and then this, it's not actually a big deal. It's just a, but a little example. But, you know, I know something else. I know that one of those people, one of those little kids, they know exactly what happened. There's no doubt. There's no certainty in one little mind of exactly what took place with, with that soap. And, and that's why Paul's arguments, you know, they said of the Puritans, they used to press men's consciences they used to really drive it home because sinners know inside and they would press their consciences. And that's why, Paul or, that's why Paul's arguments, they're so effective because we're the, when, when we think of ourselves as sinners, we are that one. We are the one that knows what we've done. We are the guilty person. There's no doubt. There's no... It's not like we just have faith in imaginary things. This is talking about true things that we know to be true when we hear the gospel presented to us. And, and you know, there's, you could imagine a thousand people around us making accusations about things we've done, and it doesn't really stick. But there's one voice inside of us that's more powerful than a thousand external people, and that's the conscience from inside of us saying, you know what you've done. You know that you're guilty, and we can't run from it. And that one voice does all the damage to, to condemn us and, and give us a true knowledge of ourselves before God's law. And so with that, that argument, the second part of his argument there, he's just turning up the heat. He's just pressing 
uh, pressing their conscience so that they can get a true perspective of who we are as, as people before a holy God. And so you can see that the last part of Paul's argument um, is in verse 17. And it says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and so he's got the Jews in mind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you, therefore, so he turns back on them, you know all these things. You've got God's law. Um, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And do you see the kernel of that argument coming back into it? You, you've got God's law in front of us. Let's see how you go by that standard. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That means God's name is dragged through the mud because of your behavior as it is written. And, and so this is the, the, the last part of Paul's argument. And what he does in this part of the argument is he starts to give examples. He starts to show them tangible evidence about the things that they've done wrong. And there's so many there that we've just... We've read through, and we don't have time to look at them all, but in, in Mark 7, verse 10, I just want to give you one example of the Pharisees, just to give you a bit of a flavor. So he's listed about a dozen, and, and there were a dozen things like this. The law said, the law that they had, it said things like this, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So people were to look after, to honor their fathers and mothers. And, but the Pharisees said, if a, man, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God. They had this category where they could say, oh, all that money in my bank, I've set it aside, and, and that's Corbin. I've devoted that to God. Uh, I, I can't look after my parents. And so what they did was, was they, uh, it says, then, then we no longer have to do anything uh, for our father or our mother. So they use this as a reason, this, this religious way that they would set aside God's law and still look holy at the same time. So they found really clever ways to get around God's law. And so they, were, they had it, but they broke it. They found little escape routes to, to dodge around God's law. But that, that passage we just read, it lists things like that. That's the Pharisees. That's the flavor of the people that Jesus is talking to. And, and, in, and another a little story that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was, um, I think I heard a story, this is basically gossip that I'm sharing with you, so we'll see how it goes. So I don't know how true it is, but I think my sister-in-law used to work in, you can do that in church, eh? A little, anyway, no, I'm just kidding. My sister-in-law, she used to, she used to work in this clothing shop, and so they'd have these, these nice clothes, and people would come in, and, and they had these taxidermy animals, so I'm not sure exactly what they were, but imagine like a uh, a deer's head up on the wall, you know, nicely mounted on the wall, and perhaps there's a, a peacock, like a nice coloured thing with its big feathers out, these taxidermy, these stuffed animals that were sitting in the shop. And a lady came into the shop, and she was outraged that they would have dead animals in the shop. And so she walked around, just, just got on her high horse, and angels was ranting through the shop, you know, like, how terrible, you've got dead animals like, this is so immoral what you're doing. Can't you see how terrible it is? And I think, I think from what I hear, she was saying, death, 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 just this crazy thing. And, and you know, my sister-in-law, I think she'd been through it once or twice. You know, she'd been around the block with a few people in the shop. And, and she, 
she gave a specific example. And so she asked this lady, she goes, excuse me, are those leather shoes that you're wearing? <laughs> and it was. She was complaining about stuffed animals, but she was wearing two dead animals on her feet. <laughs> and so that's the idea. Like we, we are so hypocritical. We do it so easily. We have judgments but we, it just turns back on ourselves. We cannot be consistent with our own standards of morality. And so it's just, that's, what, that's what Paul is trying to do. He's, he's looking at them. He's taking the law of God. He's giving specific examples. You say you keep God's law. You say you keep God's law, but you stumble here, here, and here. And so that's the, the three parts of, of the argument. So that's the, the first point that I wanted to make today was was to run through his argument. And so I think if you read this chapter in your own time, understanding what he's saying there, that'll help you get the whole chapter right. So that's, that's the argument. But I want to show you a couple of other things before we finish today. The second point I want to look at, I've called a problematic paradigm. So a paradigm is, is that way of thinking where we have interconnected ideas and we build up a whole framework in our mind. That's our paradigm, how we see and understand the world. So some people might say, I think people talk today like, that's your narrative, that's the way you make sense of everything, um, or it's your perspective or your worldview. And so oh, there's, there's another thing that, that stumbles people from coming to understand the gospel and coming to a true understanding of who we are before a holy God, and it's, it's, our, um, it's our perspective, a problematic paradigm. And, and so I want to ask this question, how is it that people can get their view of themselves and the world so wrong? Like, how can they not see that we are sinful, that we are hypocritical? You know, if everyone is sinful, as the Bible says, how come people aren't lining up in droves to find the forgiveness that's freely offered in Christ? How come they're not? If Paul's arguments are faultless, they, we even know inside of ourselves that this is true. But how come people aren't lining up for salvation? Because they're not. They're running from God. The, the, for some people, the last place they want to be is where, where you're sitting this morning. But why is that the case? And so what we find in this chapter, um, we have a couple of little indicators that show that we have a problematic paradigm. There's, there's a way of thinking um, that is faulty. And so this is my second point. And, and there's two little indicators we're going to see in this verse that, that show us how we've twisted our perspective. The first one's found in verse 4. And it says, or do you think lightly, that's the key, key idea, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? And then it goes on and says, not knowing that the kindness of God, it was meant to lead you to repentance. This patience is meant to lead you to repentance, but you think lightly of the riches of his kindness. And the best, the best way I've heard this explained was, Many of you know as well the, 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 the wonderful teacher and theologian, R.C. Sproul. He worked for, I think, about 50 years teaching classes, teaching theology. And there was this one year he had, um, and actually I want to tell you as well, if you've got a pen, write down uh, the locus of astonishment, which is the sermon, the locus of astonishment. It's a, it's a wonderful sermon that I'd encourage you to have a look at. But he's, he's, one year he's got this class, he's got 250 students that he teaches, so he's, he's lecturing, it's their first year of college, that's the first year of university for us, and um, there was a course, and three assignments were due throughout the course, you had to hand them in, or you wouldn't um, pass the course, so the first one was due 30th of September, 30th of October was the second, and 30th of November, the last assignment was due, 
And so everyone's happy, they're teaching, he's teaching the class, and then around rolls the 30th of September, the first assignment's due. You remember there's 250 students, but only 225 people hand in their papers. And so there's 25 nervous, anxious students that are trembling, wondering what's going to happen. They haven't handed in the assignment, and, and you know, they, they're begging, they're literally begging their professor, please, can you give us more time? You know, we haven't made the adjustment from secondary school to university, we, we, just, we just didn't get it done, we're so, just please. And, and R.C. Sproley says to them, do you know what, I'll, give, I'll, I'll be gracious, I'll, I'll show you amazing grace, I'll give you two more days, make sure it's due in two more days, I'll give you an extension. You don't deserve it, but next time, make sure you meet the deadline or you'll fail the paper. And so everything's happy. They, I think he says they even sung a song to him, you know, to saying how wonderful he was. But then everything's happy, and then around rolls the 30th of November, and the second assignment's due, and out of the 250 students, now 200 people turn up with their assignments. And there's 50 people that haven't handed them in. And, and the students complained that they were too busy. They, they just had too many assignments due at the same time. They couldn't get it done. They asked for an extension. Do you know what? They didn't deserve it, but their teacher says, I'll give you two more days, hand in the assignment, and they're happy again. They get on with life, and then it comes time, the 30th of November, the final assessment's due. And you know what? Out of 250 students, 150 come with their assignments ready, and there are 100 students that haven't handed in their work. And they, they casually walk into class, these 100 students, and R.C. Sproul says to them, Johnson, where's, where's your assignment? And he says, oh, relax, prof, I'll have it to you in a couple of days. You know, and, and he replied, he says, Johnson, I'm going to give you an F. I've told you twice, and I told you not to do it again. I'm going to give you an F. And do you know what he said? He heard, he heard from this student. You know the words that he said? He said, that's not fair. And R.C. Sproul said to him, he says, what did you say? That's not fair. And he said, do you, want, do you want fair? Do you want justice? And he says, Johnson, did you hand in your first assignment? And he says, no, sir. And he says, F. What about your second assignment? And he says, no, sir. And he says, F. He's got three Fs for the course. And he, and he looks at the class and he says, does anybody else want justice? <laughs> and we don't, do we? But you've got to... You've, you've, You've got to ask there, what happened? Like, what was it that went on in that classroom? What, what, what twisted their whole perspective around? At first, they were amazed at their teacher's grace. They were given what they didn't deserve. They were told if they didn't hand it in, they would fail the paper. And graciously, twice, he gave them two extensions. But over time, their whole perspective turned around 180 degrees they got it completely wrong. They, they, they had a distorted view of reality. And we could say that they began to think lightly of their teacher's kindness. Um, they lost the right perspective. In reality, when we're thinking of ourselves, as we switch back to ourselves now, in reality, we're sinners. Mankind is sinful, deserving of judgment, but we've lost the right perspective and we don't see it anymore. We think lightly of his kindness. And we can do that in the church as well. We can, we can be in church for a long time and start to think God is harsh with us or that God is somehow unfair in how he's treating us. But we, we, can't, we can't think that way. We can't let our perspective be, be turned around. Um, but the, that's the, so that's the first indicator we see in this chapter about a, a faulty perspective or a problematic paradigm. But 
The second one is in verse 11. If you look at verse 11 um, in your Bible there in Romans 2 verse 11, it says, for there is no partiality with God. And perhaps your Bible says there's no distinction. And in and the back of his mind, he's got there's no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the unrighteous and the righteous. They're all the same. And if you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 13, uh, Luke 13 verse 1 to 5, I want to illustrate this there. And there's a funny, it's, a, it's just a fascinating little, little story here. It says, now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans. So there's the crowd and Jesus interacting. They reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And what that means is, as Pilate and the Romans had come into the temple while, while some Jews were in the very act of worship, and had slaughtered them in the temple, and their blood had spilled out and was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. So you could think the, most, the, the worst and most blasphemous thing had just happened to these people. And so they have a question about it, and they say, and Jesus said to them, do you suppose, and, and he's, he's showing what they were thinking, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? So they're saying, surely they must have been sinful people. For God to do that, for God to allow that to happen, they must surely be worse sinners than other people. And Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose, and he gives another example, that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, so there's another event where a big tower had fallen down and killed um, 18 men, uh, were worse culprits than the men who live in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, that's the ones that survived, you will all likewise perish. And so that's this odd little passage of Scripture. And what these people did, they made a distinction between different types of people. They, they thought that some were good and that some were bad. The ones that suffered these tragedies, they, they must have been wicked people. And the ones that God leaves, they're, they're the good people. Um, so and, that in the, and we see that in that verse because it says that some were worse sinners, some were worse culprits than the others. And Jesus' response was just shocking to them. He just turned and looked at them and said, Oh, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You're all deserving of the same fate. And he was saying, I don't think you have a right understanding of, of this at all. From God's point of view, you, you're not all in different categories. You're all the same. You're all sinners deserving of death and you need to repent. Jesus has come down from heaven as, as God the Son, come into our world. He has the perfect perspective on what our world is. And he comes down and he just sees the world as it is. And we, we kind of bump into that because we, we don't see it how God sees it. And we see this is true in, in Romans 10 verse 3. We see this as well. It says, for not, and it's talking about the Pharisees, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And that's a key verse for us to understand, to see this perspective twisted as well, because it says, not knowing about God's righteousness. And what he means there is that they didn't know the, the standard God demanded from them was perfection. They didn't know God's perfect righteousness. And not knowing that, they established their own lower standard of morality their own standard that they thought would, would be pleasing to God. And, 
and they thought that that level was acceptable to God. And so understanding the utterly holy standard God requires is another major element required to get an accurate assessment of ourselves, to get the, the right perspective on who we are before God. And so that, that's the problematic paradigm that was hindering particularly the Jewish people. They thought lightly of God's kindness. They forgot they were guilty and demanded grace as if it was owed to them as a right, as if just because of their circumcision, as if just because we came to church, that God will be gracious to us. And secondly, uh, they made distinctions among people. They made their, their own lower standard of righteousness, forgetting that God requires perfection. Um, so that, that was the errors that twisted their perspective and, and turned them almost backwards to how God sees the world. And that leads us to our third and final point, which is a proper paradigm. So it's, it's how do we have a proper perspective on ourselves and on the world around us. And so now that we've laid the biblical foundation, we can really start to apply the truth that we've learned from this, this passage. And so for the third and final point, yeah, I want to quickly look at um, how this applies to the world around us, and I want to look at how it applies to us as Christians, as God's people. And, and I wonder if you've ever noticed... When you look at the world, we can, we can kind of look at the world around us and think, man, that world is it's just sinful, it's terrible, the stuff they're getting up to is just horrific. And, and that's true, but there's another way you can look at the world around us. And if you think about it, our world is full of moral people all around us. They're, they're people that, are, that are, they think they're good and they're living for good, they're fighting for good and justice. They are very moral. Everyone claims to be a good person. Um, everyone seems to set up their own standard of morality by which they live and by which they can judge other people. And it's because of this that I really think the second chapter in Romans is, is incredibly relevant as we look around the world us today. And so we see what we call virtue signals everywhere. You know, I, looked, I saw a vegan bumper sticker, and it says, if you love animals, don't eat them. You know, we see environmentalists telling us on their email, you know, the, the bottom of their email footer, it says that they won't print emails because, you know, they care for the environment. They're just signaling to us, I'm a, I'm a virtuous, I'm a good person. Um, in politics, we see an increasing divide between the right and the left, and both sides make claims of moral superiority, and they set up their own standard of righteousness but God, we've seen that God makes no such distinction. And so at the most base level of, of mankind, both groups from God's point of view are all in the one group of mankind and they all fall short. If they had the right perspective, they all fall short of God's moral standard. And unless they repent, they will all likewise perish. You know, one worldview that's becoming huge, hugely influential um, as, an, as an idea and a philosophy that's influencing our world is the Marxist ideas underlying various types of socialism that are, that are becoming more popular. You know, there's an idea of making a distinction between people that are either oppressors or people that are oppressed. And as we've seen, God makes no such distinctions. We can't make lower standards of righteousness and say one group is good and the other group is bad because from God's point of view, both groups are bad, and unless they all repent, they will all likewise perish. You know, we see people supporting things like the Black Lives Matter movement, and we see some people that don't. And we shouldn't start thinking that God sees one group as righteous and the other group as sinners. Mankind is all of one type. 
we're all born in Adam and we're all born in sin. And unless they repent, they will all likewise perish. And our government, our government has presented themselves as being a kind and compassionate government. And they place a high value. We've seen them place a high value on human life. You know, but if we were to apply the same things we've learned today from Paul's argument to them, how do they fare when they're judged by their own standards? How kind do they look when we ask them about abortion? How much do they value human life then? You know, their their abortion policy isn't one of the most progressive in the world. It's one of the most pernicious in the world. And so they're their hypocrisy is just staggering, and, that, and that's what we've seen. <coughs> but what's, what is the biblical perspective? Unless they repent, they will all likewise perish. And I could go on and on, um, but, the, but this is just an incredible passage of Scripture, and, and, and it's inspired by the all-wise God. And, and if, as we look back, you know, the Apostle Paul has proved that there is a God, that we are all sinful, and we, and we all have a, um, just a corrupted view of reality. And so, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. So Paul, what he's doing in, in these first two chapters, he's trying to build the, the tallest building he can build. He's trying to build the gospel. He's trying to tell people about the grace of God and the glory of Christ. And, and one thing I know about building a tall building is that to go high Upwards, you have to build a solid foundation. You have to dig down deep. You have to make a perfectly flat thing, and that's what that, that's what the apostle Paul's done. You know, we've been we've dug down deep. We've looked at the darkness of sin and guilt and mankind and judgment and condemnation and the law of God, and they're kind of weighty things. But he's building the foundation by which he can then present the gospel in the right perspective. And so in coming weeks, you know, talking with Matt, um, as there's opportunity to, to, to preach every now and then, we're going to continue through the, uh, the book of Romans. So we'll look at chapter 3 next time, and we'll continue through in sequence. And I'm looking forward to, to uh, presenting the righteousness of Christ through faith um, to all of us that deserve it and need it. Um, but that's what, that's what he's done uh, here. And so... Yeah, and just to finish, just to make a couple of comments, what, what does this mean to us as Christians? You know, we can look at the world around us, but we need to look at ourselves as Christians. And we've seen that the wrong perspective is to think lightly of the riches of God's kindness. But for us, the right perspective is very simple. We're to live our lives thinking very heavily about the riches of God's kindness. We're to remember the gravity and the significance of the amazing grace that's been given to us. We're to live our lives, as I think Matt said last week, joyfully discharging an immense debt of gratitude. We, we, we love what Christ has done for us. And we never lose sight of that, like that classroom. We never lose sight of that. And we never let our perspective be slowly turned around and distorted. We stay focused on a right perspective of who we are and what Christ has done for us. And it, it just is crazy, isn't it? The, the world around us, thinks that they are full of virtue, and Christians are the only people that know that we're not. You know, everything in our world seems backwards. And that brings me to the title of my sermon, which was Virtue Signals of Vice. And so we've seen that Roman, Romans 2 teaches us that virtue is a signal of vice. 
It, it turns back around and condemns us. Virtue is a signal of vice, but acknowledging guilt is the gateway to Christ. But should we just bow our heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We, we, we pray you'd give us a, a, just a right perspective on who we are and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray you'd fill us with joy that we wouldn't be looking around the world around us in judgment, but with mercy, wanting to show your gospel, wanting to show your grace, begging people to come to Christ, Lord, that we would um, be able to just communicate the wonderful truths we have and have learned of you to other people around us. We pray you'd be with us during the week, uh, that you'd go before us, that you'd keep us holy, that you'd teach us more about yourself. And we ask this in Christ's name.